My family had been farmers for generations. When my father passed away and handed it off the farm to me, I promised him I'd keep the tradition going. That land has kept my family fed for generations, and I wasn't going to be the one to break the chain. I did pretty good for a couple decades. I found a wife, we had several children, and I was uh, proud how well I had kept the family tradition going. But as the years went by, it got harder and harder to compete with the bigger corporate farms. I watched several of the other farming families around us sell off over the years. Either they decided the juice wasn't worth the squeeze, or the heirs decided they would rather move away for more lucrative opportunities. And so no one was left to keep them going. My good fortune couldn't go on forever, though. Eventually, I had a year where I, I finally hit bottom. We got a year so bad, we weren't going to remain solvent. We had almost a complete crop failure that year. There was almost nothing worth harvesting. The thing that got me was that the farms around us were booming. They had record harvest that year. It was just my crops that had failed. I don't even know what it was that I had done to fail so miserably. It wasn't the first bad year. That's just the nature of farming. But it was like the fields had decided that they were sick of us and wanted us gone. We even lost most of our livestock we raised for our personal use. My wife tried to convince me to let her parents help cover our expenses. They were pretty well off. Her father had made a pretty penny, owning some oil fields or something. They were more than willing to help us out, but I politely refused. I had never accepted charity before, and I wasn't about to start. I had a banker friend who offered me a mortgage, real good rates and everything, better than I could get anywhere else, really. But in my mind, mortgaging the place was just as bad as selling it. Couldn't really own it in my mind if there was a mortgage against it and a whole like legal lien and escrow and all that nonsense. And I wasn't about to pawn the family heirloom because I had failed to provide for my family. Then I met Mr. Stowe. I was walking around the farm to check the fence, or more accurately, I was checking the fence to have an excuse to walk around the farm. I was trying to figure out how to pay that month's bills. We needed feed for the animals we had left. My family needed food, and we had other bills to pay. Ruminating on what I could do to keep my family going another month. A mental crossroads of sorts with wicked paths every which way when all of a sudden I heard a voice out of the blue behind me. There was a man stepping out of his car. I didn't recognize the make, but I have to say it. It looked slick. He was a middle-aged man, not bad-looking in his own way, and dressed in a white suit with little cufflinks that said MP on him. He was standing there with the smile of a door-to-door -door salesman. I asked him, Is there anything I can help you with? Not in an unkind tone. His white suit and fancy car was pretty out of place, but... He didn't have the air of a stranger to him. He was both out of place, a well-dressed, apparently wealthy man on this random dirt road, and out of time, his style of his white suit feeling like a staple of a bygone era. 
But he, uh, he felt familiar. He replied back, I certainly hope so, Mr. Thomas. I heard you had a very particular pocket watch that I was hoping we could reach a deal on. I pulled the old watch. My grandfather had given it to me when I was a pretty young boy out of the pocket of my stained overalls. With a chuckle, I told him it didn't even run. He closed his door and walked over to me, shaking my hand as he said, That's no matter at all. I had a watch like that many years ago, which I unfortunately lost. I've been looking everywhere trying to find one like it. When I heard you had one, I just had to come to see if you would be willing to part with it. I apologized that he had come such a long way and gone through the trouble and that whoever it was that had told him about me must have left out that it wasn't something I was considering selling. This wasn't actually, strictly speaking, the truth. The previous week, I had actually already taken it to a jeweler to try to sell it. The jeweler didn't even offer me enough to keep the family going a week, let alone a month, and I still had almost sold it before I snapped back to my senses. With a slight frown, this gentleman said, Well... I've come all this way. Would you at least hear my offer? How does four grand sound? I had planned to turn him down, but hearing him offer me enough money to keep us going a month and a half caught me off guard. I didn't say yes, but I didn't say no either. I stood there looking down on the old worn out thing in my hand. His frown shifted into a warm smile, the smile that makes you lower your guard. He spoke, the words felt like warm water washing away my stress, saying, Mr. Thomas, I'd be willing to go as high as $8,000. I tried to fight that temptation. I, I really did, but it seemed like a good deal. Too good to pass up. Eight grand would give me the time I needed to figure things out. I might even be able to get us back on our feet with that much. He must have seen the resolve fading on my face as he pulled an envelope out from inside his immaculately white jacket. He opened it and showed me the $8,000 cash he had brought with him. He held his hand out in front of him for me to shake, and with a sigh, I unhooked the watch chain and handed it over to him, his eyes bright as he handed the envelope to me. I felt a shock as he shook my hand, a numb feeling running up my arm. I stood there silently, counting my money. As he was opening his car door, he turned to me and told me, You're a good man, Mr. Thomas. I hope all our business will be as mutually beneficial as this. It didn't sit right with me, the way he said it, but holding enough money to keep your family and farm running goes a long way to soothe one's unease, I guess. My good fortune was... Short-lived, though. About a week later, a snake bit one of the kids while he was stacking wood. Had to rush him to the clinic, and the docks cost most of the money I'd earned from the watch. We weren't bankrupt, but the money was like a week's worth now, more than a month's worth. A few days later, while I was doing chores around the house, my wife and kids had gone into town for church. I heard a knock on the door. I was worried it was someone I owed money to. Who else would bother me on a Sunday? But when I opened the door, I found a smiling Mr. Stowe in the same spotless white suit. 
He was standing on my porch, wiping his shoes on the mat. I invited him in and offered him some iced tea I'd just finished brewing. He politely declined. We exchanged pleasantries. He told me he was glad to hear my son was recovering after his snake bite, and he hoped the money had been a blessing for my family. I guess word travels fast in that community. I noticed that as we talked, he kept flicking his eyes to the wall towards the gun rack. He raised an eyebrow at me as if to ask, may I? As he walked over to the wall. I nodded and he reached up, taking my father's old rifle off the rack. An old Winchester lever action. It had been passed down for a couple generations. As he fiddled with the action, he turned to me and said, Ma, what a fine specimen. He, you know, didn't have a fake accent, but it's my story. Anyway, I've always loved these old lever actions. Such a uniquely American design. He turned to me with glee in his pale blue eyes. Without looking up with the rifle in his hand, he asked me if I'd be open to another exchange. I shook my head. Of course, I wasn't going to sell that rifle specifically. When I was a boy, my father had once, with that very rifle, shot a feral pig as it charged at me. I owed my life to that rifle and my father. I couldn't ever part with something like that. He frowned. I don't know why, but it made me feel like a bad host somehow. And he said, Oh, well, I suppose you probably don't need the money. I hear it's been a booming year this year. It felt like he was mocking my misfortune specifically, but he spoke in such a sincere tone that I chalked it up to my oversensitive pride. As he went to put it back in its place, I tried to say confidently, but probably sounded more desperate. Well, I don't shoot it much. How how much were you thinking it's worth? He was facing the wall, but I felt like he was smiling while he almost shouted, Mr. Thomas, splendid! Without even discussing the price, he handed me an envelope full of cash while he kept playing with the rifle. I counted the money this eccentric man had handed me. It was just under 4000 I hated to part with the gun for four grand, but... After the hospital bills, I really did need the money. And at least Mr. Stowe seemed like the sort who would appreciate the gun's history. He hadn't watched me count the money, but as soon as I had finished, he turned around, hand outstretched to shake on our deal. I hesitated for a second, remembering the shock last time I shook his hand, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that while there was a little shock, I barely felt it unlike last time. He quickly excused himself after that, and with a polite goodbye and a compliment about how pleasant it was doing business with me, I watched him drive away. My wife noticed the rifle was missing as soon as she got home. I didn't know how to explain the deal I had made with Mr. Stowe. I hadn't even told her I had sold my watch yet. So I fibbed a little bit and told her I had lent it to an old friend. She gave me a look, but she didn't, she didn't press it too much. I slept pretty good that night. At least we'd be able to hold out a couple more weeks with the money I had made with Mr. Stowe. My peace didn't last long, though. The next day, I must have forgotten to put the brake on when I parked the tractor, because it rolled down the hill directly over the well pump. The replacement bump ate through the money from the rifle. I skipped dinner every night that week, making excuses about not being hungry. 
I wasn't sure how I was going to buy groceries, let alone pay when we got diesel delivered the next week. The following Sunday, I was sitting outside sipping on whiskey that I couldn't even afford to replace when I finished the bottle. I was trying to distract myself from the appointment I had made to go in on Monday to reluctantly sign papers for the mortgage. I didn't want to do it, but it was either the mortgage or the charity of my in-laws, and if I couldn't provide for my family, I wasn't going to add insult to injury by taking charity, too. As I drank to forget my suffering, as the good book says, I saw Mr. Stowe's car driving down the long gravel driveway. Probably should have been, but I wasn't at all surprised to see him. Truth be told, watching his shiny, clean car kick up dust on the way down the driveway was quite the relief, all things considered. I just hoped he was wanting to make another equitable exchange. I greeted him with a friendly wave as he parked his car and got out. He had a briefcase in his hand with him, too. He waited until he was walking up the steps to the porch to greet me with that same soothing tone of his. I stood to greet him, offered to get him a glass so he could join me for a drink of my dwindling supply of whiskey. He declined and, setting his briefcase on the table, looked me in the eyes with those bright, shining spheres of his. We held eye contact for what would have been an uncomfortable length of time for any man less friendly than Mr. Stowe. As he started to make his latest pitch, he opened his briefcase and brought out a piece of what looked like old-styled parchment. He started into his pitch, saying, Mr. Thomas, even though I've only known you for a short time, I've come to consider you a friend. Now, as my friend, I want to help you, and I wouldn't dream of asking you to give up the farm or insulting you with charity. I do, however, have a deal that I think would profit us both. He went on to explain he wanted something my father had passed down to me, something that had been passed down for generations as far back as my family line went. After some beating around the bush, I told him to cut it out and get to the chase. He told me he wanted to buy my soul off me. I let out a deep belly laugh. Buying my soul was worse than charity. At least charity was honest about it being money for nothing. His smile didn't waver while I laughed at his proposition, though. He just waited for me to finish. When I had finally finished and gotten my mirth out of my system, he spoke up again. said, I know it sounds a bit silly, Mr. Thomas, but I promise you, to me, this is as good a deal as any of our others. He turned the briefcase around, showing me the rest of the contents. Stacks and stacks of $100 bills. I wasn't laughing at that point. I asked him how much was there. He grinned and said about $1.2 million. I looked down at the contract and sure enough, it was just a simple sentence more or less saying in exchange for the money, I would renounce any and all claim to my soul and forfeit it to him. I didn't want any charity, but Mr. Stowe's sincerity was undeniable. He really did think of this the same as any of our other deals. And while I was fond of him, I didn't consider him a friend. And taking advantage of a man who seemed to have more money than he knew what to do with it, it didn't bother my conscience that much. I asked him for a pen, and without hesitation, he pulled a small metal knife more of a letter opener than anything else, and said, If you would humor me, I think it'd be fitting to use a little blood for the ink. 
guess I should have expected a crazy man who wanted to buy my soul to pull something like this. But for that money, I figured I could humor him. I asked him to hold on as I went into the house to grab a lighter. I told him I wanted to make sure it was sterile beforehand. And he politely nodded and said, of course. While I was digging through the junk drawer for the lighter, I heard Mr. Stowe talking to someone. I rushed out where it was the family or really anyone who would distract Mr. Stowe from our arrangement. As I rushed back on the porch, I saw a young man standing there next to Mr. Stowe, who now had a sour look on his face. I asked the young man if he needed anything, and he shook his head. He said, I don't need anything from you, Tom. I'm here because you need something. I didn't like how uncomfortable Mr. Stowe looked. I was worried he'd change his mind if I didn't get rid of this young man fast. Politely told the man, I'm all right, I don't need anything, and if you wouldn't mind, we were kind of in the middle of something. He looked down at the paper and then over at Mr. Stowe. The young man spoke. His voice didn't have the same overwhelming friendliness as Mr. Stowe, but it was clean, you know. He said, going by Mr. Stowe these days, your name too long or too well known for you? Don't you think Tom should know why his tractor brake didn't hold or who bit his son or heck? Maybe you should tell him why his farm had such bad luck this year when everyone else was doing great. His face wasn't friendly like Mr. Stowe's, but this young man had a look as stern as my grandfather's that time he had caught me cursing in front of my grandmother. Mr. Stowe ignored him, setting the knife down on the table, said, Mr. Thomas, we don't really need to bother with the paperwork. Let's just shake on it. For the first time, Mr. Stowe's eyes didn't look friendly. They looked hungry. The young man stepped in between me and my financial salvation, and with a stern face, he looked me in the eyes and said, I have a better deal for you, Tom. Don't take his money. It wouldn't do you any good anyway. The way he said it, it felt like every lecture my father had given me all wrapped into one. His tone made me feel like I was a little kid who was being fussed at for running into the street without looking both ways. I just froze. I wanted to tell him to mind his business, but I couldn't even manage to get out a whisper. His tone felt like the weight and authority of every person I had ever obeyed in my life all rolled into one. After a moment, Mr. Stowe grabbed the young man from behind and threw him to the ground with more strength and violence than he looked like he was capable of. Without saying a word, he extended his hand for me to shake. Gone was the friendliness in his eyes, and instead of a smile, he just licked his lips. He barked at me, saying, Thomas, this is the deal of your life. Don't be a fool. I stepped back in what I guess was fear. I felt my empty pocket where I had kept my watch, and then I looked over to the woodpile. I looked through the screen door to where the rifle had been, and then to the tractor. I don't know where this young man had come from, but I don't know how he would have known about the watch or the rifle I had sold. I hadn't told anyone about those deals I had made. He seemed so sure, too, that I shouldn't accept this one. Mr. Stoke glared at me, stepping closer, his outstretched hand inches from mine. Without looking at me, the young man called my name and he pointed to the end of the driveway where my wife and kids were pulling in. I hadn't expected them home so soon. I wonder how long the three of us had spent talking on that front porch. 
Mr. Stowe looked panicked as he said, Thomas, it's now or never. Come shake my hand and you and your family will be set. Don't you want to support your family, Tom? My arm went limp, my hand dropping to my side. I couldn't do it. What would my wife say? I'd been too ashamed to tell her about the watch or the rifle. What would my father have said? The young man grabbed the suitcase and grabbed Mr. Stowe by the arm and wordlessly he pulled them away. Mr. Stowe cursed at me, shouting what a fool I was. When I ignored the curses, he begged, telling me he just wanted to help me out. I didn't look at him. I just watched the family drive towards the house. As they approached, I started to worry how I'd explain these two strange men. I turned to see where they had gone, but they were nowhere to be seen. I looked over to where Mr. Stowe had parked, but his car wasn't there either. My wife asked if I was alright after she had gotten home. I told her I was fine. She just looked at me concerned and told me about how a strange young man was asking about me at the picnic. Apparently he got her anxiety going, so she and the kids left to come home early so she could check on me. The next morning I went into town to sign papers at the bank. As I was about to enter the bank, I heard the voice of the young man again. He was calling my name from somewhere behind me. When I turned around to see where he was, he was nowhere to be seen. I stood there for a minute looking like a confused fool as I looked up and down the street trying to spy him. Just as I was turning around to enter the bank, my father-in-law happened to drive past and stop. He rolled down his windows to talk to me. He asked me what I was doing at the bank. Swallowing my pride for probably the first time in a decade, I told him the truth. I was taking out a mortgage. He offered to take me to lunch first to talk it over. I wasn't going to accept. I had an appointment to keep and all, but he said it'd be a favor if I let him treat me to lunch. said he was working on his magnanimity or something like that. I glanced at the bank door and then got in the car.